This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In the new Netflix drama The Diplomat, Carrie Russell plays an ambassador who's thrust into an international incident with massive stakes. The show combines the tension of Homeland with the administrative drama of The West Wing, which makes sense given that The Diplomat's creator and showrunner worked on both of those shows. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about The Diplomat on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining us today is freelance journalist Christina Escobar. She's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of latinamedia.co. Welcome back, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to have you. So, Carrie Russell stars in The Diplomat as Kate Weiler, a career diplomat who's planning to head to Kabul when she's reassigned and named ambassador to the UK. She doesn't want the job because she thinks it's going to be a ceremonial tea and crumpets affair, but her presence is necessary after an attack on a British ship kills 41 soldiers. Soon, she's trying to prevent World War III as she negotiates with British leaders, some of whom wish to retaliate swiftly just as soon as they know who's responsible. Kate's efforts are complicated by the presence of her at least somewhat estranged husband, Hal, who's played by Rufus Sewell. He's a hotshot veteran diplomat in his own right, and while his counsel is useful, he brings a huge amount of baggage. Plus, Kate soon learns that she's being groomed quietly to replace the vice president of the United States, which means she's being watched closely by a handler, played by Otto Essendo, who's reporting back to the White House and dealing with his own secret relationship with the CIA operative, played by Ali Ahn. Kate is aided and sometimes thwarted in her efforts by dashing British diplomat Austin Dennison, played by David Jesse. Their chemistry looms large as the show progresses and Kate's marriage gets more and sometimes less volatile. So you've got international intrigue, spycraft, diplomacy, government, romance. It's all here. The Diplomat was created by Deborah Kahn, who's also the showrunner. She previously worked on The West Wing and Homeland. All eight episodes of The Diplomat are streaming now on Netflix. Linda, I'm going to start with you. What do you think of The Diplomat? Well, as you described it, I was like, sounds like television, like as you, as you sort of described the plot and the structure of it. I went into this expecting that I was going to find it to be kind of regular TV, plus I really love Carrie Russell. Mm-hmm. But I really liked this show. I thought it actually was about a lot of interesting things, particularly it's about extremely competent people who are good at their jobs. And it's about how different competencies that people have are used and not used and valued and not valued. I think it's a super interesting show about gender and work and marriage. There are these moments where there are very fine lines between what's diplomacy, what's flattery, and what is just kind of indulging powerful people. I love those tensions. And one thing that I thought was interesting, the show has really, the publicity around the show has really pushed the fact that Deborah Kahn worked on the West Wing, worked on Homeland. It doesn't mention very much that she had a long run on Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. It's almost like maybe the more prestige shows are the ones (laughs) they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But Grey's Anatomy has had a lot going for it. It's an incredibly successful show, and it does invest in the interiority of women. When I sort of put all that together, it felt to me like it's got a little DNA from Homeland, which is like the interest in international relations and kind of process nerds when it comes to diplomacy and protocol and things. It has definitely some West Wing 
DNA. I think the dialogue is often quite funny. I think the show is often quite funny, but not in a way that is as affected as sometimes The West Wing was. And then I think it has a lot of good kind of relationshipy show DNA, like Grey's Anatomy. So I really, I wound up being super into this show, and I thought it was a lot more interesting than I expected. It's television, right? It's not... I wouldn't call this show cinematic. I don't think it's particularly inventive with structure or form or anything like that. But I really, really was into the story. All right. How about you, Christina? I liked it, too. You know, I love Carrie Russell as well. And I loved The Americans, which is another show about marriage and politics. The Diplomat is not in the same league as The Americans. It's not Mm. fair to compare them. To me, it felt more like a cross between like Scandal and Madam Secretary, especially in the first couple of episodes. I think before the show finds its footing, it sort of ventures, it dips its toe into melodrama, but then pulls back to be more a show about politics and relationships and a little bit more serious. There were some things that irked me about this show. I do not like the convention where we have a powerful woman, but she makes a continuous point about being different from other women. Mm. In this show, Carrie Russell's character is continuous being like, no dresses, even though when she does put on a dress, she looks amazing and gets to be on the cover of fashion magazines. Like, it's very (laughs) silly. I can be powerful, but I have to differentiate myself from other women. I have to bring other women down is irksome to me. But I would say that other than that, there are a lot of really interesting relationships and plays with relationships. And I would say one of the ways the show succeeds is showing a marriage in trouble. I feel like a lot of times we get either 100% healthy relationships, which is rare, but we get that, or we get hyper-abusive relationships. And here we have the central couple unsure of each other. There are real problems, perhaps problems that they cannot overcome, but also there's a tension there, a sexual tension, an intellectual tension, a colleague tension that I found really interesting. It was so imperfect in a way that it feels like real relationships often are, right? It's about which compromises you're willing to make, which compromises you aren't willing to make. All of that, except for there was one scene where there was physical violence between the couple that was played for laughs that I just, I don't think domestic violence is funny. That was my other large concern. Yeah, I hear you on that scene. It's definitely played as kind of a silly, she's she's attacking him. She's so mad. Tonally, it doesn't quite work. I agree with you there. I think on balance, this show ended up, for me, scratching an itch I didn't quite know I had. In the last few years, I've binged the entirety of The West Wing, which I had never really watched when it was originally on the air. And I binged the entirety of Designated Survivor, which is a much worse show. These are both kind of process shows about government. And this show has enough of that to scratch that itch. To Linda's point about just how interesting it is to watch kind of diplomacy in action and watch people who are good at their jobs in action. I really enjoyed and appreciated that. And I didn't have the response that I so often had when I was watching shows like Designated Survivor and The West Wing, where I would often sit there with my arms folded like, that would never happen that way. I don't follow diplomacy as much as I follow government. And so maybe diplomats are watching this show like, oh my God, you would never do that. But to me, there was a plausibility to this show that I appreciated. And I thought it did a nice job. And tell me if you agree. Like I, I thought it did a nice job of dealing with kind of shifting international threats 
and handling them in a nuanced way that didn't get bogged down in this kind of, this is who the enemy is. I would agree. I sometimes get tired of the shows about to the great American and European empires, like that clashing of world powers. I feel like that story has been told quite a lot. Mm-hmm. It is hard to say something new, but I felt like this show, The Diplomat, did a good job here because they were able to portray how people at these high levels of power see themselves as these like world powers who are doing all of these amazing, uh, wonderful, world-changing things, but also to complicate it a little bit and show where they are sometimes making mistakes, how they bring in perhaps some false assumptions, and also how perhaps that is not always true, that sort of coming in as this understanding of these are the world powers and they are the only ones that matter. I thought it did a better job than most and avoided some of the cliches that make me feel tired when it's that type of conflict. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I It looks at the beginning like it's going in the direction of a kind of more standard idea of good guy, bad guy. And then over time, it actually pulls out and you start to understand it is also about how some, you know, powers, the U.S. and the U.K., among them, can certainly choose to exploit essentially racism, you know, to sort of solve their international conflict problems by sort of exploiting assumptions that are wrong that people already have. I appreciated that. I appreciated how direct it was at times about the history of American and UK diplomacy and the reputation that it has, which is not glowing, depending on where you are in the world, to say the least. <laughs> there is a, a moment when there's a very pitched argument between Kate, the Carrie Russell character, and Billy, who is the chief of staff to the president. She's one of the people who's kind of working in the background. And then Idra, who is the CIA station chief in London. And these three women have this conversation about whether to kind of push and pressure an existing source of Kate's. And one of the things that Kate ultimately says to them is, do not be an infinitely ravenous American. I sort of sparked to that line because just understanding that that is a perception that people have in the world, the infinitely ravenous American, despite the fact that she comes off as a kind of caring and competent person, recognizing that history within American approaches to international relations, I thought was really interesting. And I want to stress also, I also just enjoyed this as like, a show with a lot of fun workplace dialogue, mm-hmm. a show with a bunch of hot people who you can't really tell who's going to wind up interested in each other <laughs> as their capacity as hot people. There are some very hot men in this show, I have to say, which for my own personal preferences, I, I enjoy that. But there are also just a lot of very charismatic people. And I really agree with Christina that the complexity of the marriage is very interesting because I kept getting to the point where I was like, I have strong feelings about this husband, about whether I want her to be in this relationship with this husband. But like, 
The show pulls back every time it kind of makes it look like it's going to be a simple question about the marriage. It kind of pulls back and complicates it again. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Rufus Sewell is a really good bit of casting here because you really kind of think you're getting a certain kind of guy. And then he's revealing layers that make you at least understand why she hasn't kicked him to the curb 10 years ago. I like that relationship as part of this show. I did want to ask both of you, how you feel about the way this show is being rolled out. Like, it's being dropped in as eight episodes, all in one gulp on Netflix. They're not rolling it out a week at a time. Do you think that's the right way to experience this show? Would you have liked a slower burn? Yeah, my reaction to this was like, binge it, binge it, because I binged it. Um, I started watching it and tore through the entire thing. So I felt like binging it was right. I also think it complicates some of its stories over time. So I'm happy to kind of not have people necessarily. I'm I'm happy that if you watch the first episode and you think, this seems like it has some promise, but it also seems like it's maybe a little too simple, that it kind of complicates itself and you can kind of get into that more quickly because it is bingeable. I would be a binge person on this for sure. Yeah, I had the exact same experience. I think there were times even in kind of some of the middle episodes where the show moved a little more slowly than I probably would have wanted if it were something that I was expected to kind of go back and refine every week. I think it was easier to kind of stick with it through occasional little slow patches, just kind of having it on and barreling ahead at the end. You know, like there is generally something at the end of each episode that makes you want to click through and watch the next episode. But I'm not sure I would have necessarily gone back after the first couple episodes and stayed with it. So I think I think this was the right way to go with this. I felt like It took a while for the show to get going, and then particularly the first two episodes didn't do the rest of the show justice because they felt more simple. They didn't have the levels of complication. They were a little tonally different, I would say, also as it got set up. I think being able to sort of push through, see more, and get to the really good stuff, I would say by the end, I was like, I'm ready for a ninth episode. I'm ready for a season two, which I wasn't (laughs) expecting to feel when I watched those first two episodes. So I think this is one that it definitely works to watch them in rapid succession. Yeah, and I hope that there is enough in those first episodes that suggests that it is a thoughtful show that will kind of keep people going. My favorite detail from the early going of this show is when they're trying to set up this really complicated marriage that on the one hand has a lot of conflict, but is also really intimate in a very particular way. There is a moment when Kate has Hal smell her armpits in this (laughs) very, like, casual This is clearly just a thing they do. Mm -hmm. It sounds weird, but like that is sort of the moment where you realize these people have no boundaries with each other at all. They have no walls up. They are completely merged as a single person. She just sticks her pit in his face and she's totally comfortable doing that. And I think it's a great relationship moment. I think you're hitting on something that I really liked about this show, which is that that relationship, as much as they have that like kind of extreme levels of intimacy and familiarity, their relationship is still a puzzle to you as a viewer. You're still trying to piece together exactly what the terms of their marriage are. And I think that is also really interesting that I still don't feel like I know as much as I have that great shorthand of like, they have this level of intimacy. They have this professional relationship. They have these past experiences together. There are still all these things I'm still wondering about 
after eight episodes. And I, I'm excited about that with this show, which I really agree. I, I do hope I do hope it gets another season. And another thing I got to say I really appreciate, while we're just kind of tacking on things we appreciate about the show, I appreciated just the visuals. I think it would have been so easy to set this entire thing in windowless Pentagon-type you know, war rooms. You just know that exact kind of dingy lighting I'm talking about. And they do a nice job with this show of really taking it into castles and courtyards in ways that give it some real visual appeal as well beyond the dialogue, which I think really snaps. Well, we want to know what you think about The Diplomat. Find us at facebook.com slash pchh. Up next, what is making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, What's Making Us Happy This Week. Christina Escobar, what's making you happy this week? Yes. um, So there is a web series out called No Borders, Just Flavors. And it's from United We Dream, which is a youth immigrant rights group. And it's a cooking show of young immigrants, a cook-off. And it is just so wonderful. It is beautiful and kind and delicious. And I've really enjoyed watching it, in part because I feel like so much of the news about immigrant youth is so dark and terrible that there's nice to have some joy and see some joy of that experience. But I would also say one of the things the show does really well is it's not trying to humanize young immigrants. What it's doing is celebrating them and showing the ways that immigrants enrich our culture and the beauty and warmth and love and great flavors of it. And it's just been a joy for me to watch. And I hope lots of people get to check it out and live that joy as well. 
All right, so that's No Borders, Just Flavors. Thank you, Christina. Linda Holmes, what's making you happy this week? Well, the podcast, You Must Remember This, has had seasons that have covered a lot of stories about the history of Hollywood, but nothing has really pulled me in quite like the previous season, which was called Erotic 80s, and the current season, which is called Erotic 90s, or as Karina Longworth puts it in her, and I'm not making fun of her voice, this is a chosen style, Erotic 90s. <laughs> I think these shows are so interesting and they're so maddening because one of the things she is very good at, she has kind of a an interest in the connection between what is happening in movies and what is happening in the wider world that is also something I'm always fascinated about. What she's talking about, yes, it's erotic 90s. It's the way that sex was playing out in film at that time. But it also has a lot to do with sexism more generally and what was happening with actors and actresses. As we tape this, the uh, Thelma and Louise episode has just come out and I have not listened to it yet, but I did just listen to an episode about Teresa Russell and Sandra Locke. And Teresa Russell is a, an actress from that time who was doing a lot of very sexy movies. And Sandra Locke um, became famous partly because she sued Clint Eastwood, who had been her longtime partner. But Sandra Locke was also a gifted actor and director. And there's a whole story of how her career was essentially sabotaged as a result of that conflict that I found incredibly compelling I could listen to like four or five seasons of Erotic 90s because <laughs> you're now in the sweet spot of the movies that kind of were coming out when I was developing an interest in, in film and thinking about film. I love them. Again, it's called You Must Remember This. The current season is Erotic 90s, hosted by Karina Longworth. I am a gigantic nerd of this show, <laughs> so I do recommend it. Wonderful. Thank you, Linda Holmes. I've got one programming note and one thing making me happy. The programming note is that starting this week, I am writing the NPR Music Newsletter. Woohoo! Uh, you can sign up for the music newsletter at npr.org slash music newsletter. I will be writing it every week for the foreseeable future, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. Stephen, we're going to now have to have like a newsletter off yes. every week. Rivalry. Rivalry. I mean, you could subscribe to that. You could also subscribe at npr.org slash pop culture newsletter. But, you know, it's fine. I'm not familiar with that one. Tell me about that one. I don't know. It's <laughs> really good. People should read it every week. I'll take that under advisement. The thing that is making me happy this week is a fantastic new album by a singer-songwriter from the UK named Fen Lily. That is spelled F-E-N-N-E. I had been mispronouncing it as Fene, like the pasta. Within the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of really fantastic records by singer-songwriters making soothing, thoughtful, really interesting and compelling and beautiful music that seems very soft on the surface, but digs deep the closer you listen. I'm really in love with this Fen Lily record. It's called Big Picture. Let's actually hear a little bit of the song Lights Light Up. It took a lot of me to get back up from sleeping All my way, the pressure and the floor So that's Fen Lily and Big Picture. Uh, you can just get lost in just the guitars on this record, as you can tell from that clip. So gorgeous. 
Love it. Fenlily. Big picture. Please listen. That is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, you can sign up for the Pop Culture Happy Hour newsletter, which apparently is a thing, Woo-hoo. at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Christina Escobar, Linda Holmes, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, bud. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson, and we will see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.